This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Hello, film lovers and alien overlords, and welcome to Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other, which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. In this episode, we're peeking behind the veil of the ordinary and sticking our noses in where they don't belong as we look at two conspiratorial masterpieces. Yes, both films feature reluctant heroes who discover that the world around them is manufactured to control them. One film is directed by a genre master and stars a rock and roll wrestler, and the other is directed by a rising star of black-led cinema and stars Jamie Foxx and a bloke from Star Wars. Today we're looking at 1988's They Live versus 2023's They Cloned Tyrone. I'm award-winning filmmaker and someone who has total respect and affection towards our ruling overlords. Thank you for everything. Craig Anderson. And today I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile and a man who's all out of bubble gum. It's Herschel Isaacs. Hi, guys. I just want to say for our audience, this is the earliest we've ever taped at 6.30 in the morning and a special slot that we had to fit in between other stuff. I'm and tired. I want to add the university is a ghost town. I love it like this. We're in a ghost town. We're high on coffee and we're going to give you the best podcast you've ever listened to. We're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother, a man who spent the last few decades implanting horrible nonsense into the future ruling classes. <laughs> it's Associate Professor of Film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. That's literally how I see my role in the university. <laughs> my job is to prepare students to overtake the world. That's really what we need in the world. But so you're subversively, completely, I because you, you've you've worked out from. Uh, I've worked out that we got a lot of problems. Having a class consciousness, and we're and, out of bubble gum. Now the three of us grew up together on Darragland in Western Sydney, smack bang in the middle of Mount Druitt and St Mary's. And as we've discussed on the last episode, Bruce Isaacs getting his license was something that freed us up to see a lot more movies in the cinema. But another major rite of passage that allowed us to go to the movies was celebrated on the 1st of November 1994 when I finally turned 18. This meant that the three of us were allowed to go to the cinema and watch R-rated movies for the first time. <laughs> and boys, do you remember the first movie R-rated that we saw in cinemas together? I don't... I, That's a I'm very gonna, good question. I'm going to have a shot. At, uh, I know the one that was the most profound impact for me. I believe that is also Pop our fish. first. <laughs> That is the so first Pulp one. Fiction, because that came out in 94, and we were 18, in uh, all three of us turned 18 in 1994. And I was only like uh, three, five weeks into being 18. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So Pulp Fiction, I mean, even to this day, Pulp Fiction is still one of the most impactful movies I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And to consider that was one of the first movies we could go to without a parent or guardian. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, we'd all, grow, we'd all watched anything we wanted. 
but not to actually go to the movies and to watch a Tarantino movie. And this was when Tarantino really became Quentin Tarantino. And this is it's it's an iconic film for us to. It, it ushered in a new type of cinema yeah. as well, well you know. The whole like narrative, right? It yeah. changed everything. The whole, you know, the first time I watched it, the way he uses music, for example, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't have known a hell of a lot about exploitation cinema before. So not black exploitation. So like to see this weird stuff, you know, even to see Samuel Jackson with a crazy wig, it's like, what is this sort of cinema? Let me set the scene for you guys. This day I remember very, very well. Yeah. I had an audition because I don't know if you'd known we'd gotten into uni yet. Do we find out back uh, in those days what we were getting into? I don't think we would have known. What was yet. the date, Craig? It was like early uh, mid December in 1994. Uh, yeah, we'd have known by then. Okay, I had to, I was moving um, to to Canberra, so I would have ah, known you accommodation already, okay, and all so that. And, I knew that I wasn't going to get in based on my marks. So this was like... <laughs> I, I love that you, you, you're so comfortable with, your, with, with you. My dullness. <laughs> you're so comfortable with your lack of achievement that you can just say it on the podcast. No, no, it's true. It was a terrifying time for me because yeah. the only way in was audition. Yeah. Like without auditioning to get into university, I was dead. Like, I, and it was... Now, I actually remember us talking... Uh, I don't know if you all... I don't remember the three of us. And Craig, you were very scared. Of of course I was. <laughs> I was going to go to either TAFE or just yeah. go start working in a hardware store. So yeah. I was so worried. Because at that time you worked at Bunnings, didn't you? No, this was no, just was before this, that. Was it, okay. Did yeah. you work at Bunnings or was it a smaller uh, hardware store? Well, it was called Hardware House. Hardware yeah, House, that's, that's yeah. right. BBC's Hardware House. Because I remember I used to come in there mm. and your knowledge of where things were <laughs> astonished me. Like if I go, okay, Craig, where's the hammers? Yes. You would just go... Aisle seven on the left. Oh, they're, go, they're in the tool Whoa. section. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they don't go in aisles. They're in their own separate section. See, there you but, go. Yeah. Um, but I remember I had to go and audition at Wollongong University. So I had to get this train down yeah, right. to Wollongong. It was like a, a three-hour, two-and-a-half-hour journey. And on the way back, I met a, a, a girl. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she had Here gone. Here we go. Yep. She had, no, nothing terrible happened, Herschel. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was a really nice thing. I met this young, uh, well, same age as me, I guess, 18, and we were on the train back, and she ha- it was her formal that night, and she'd grown up in the inner west, uh, and um, yeah, right. she ha- wasn't going to go to the formal. And for some reason, we started talking on the train, and then by the time we arrived in Sydney, she decided she'd go to the formal. So I said, well, I'll help you, and I went. Well, was, you talked her into going to the formal and taking you as her date. No, 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 no. That would be brilliant. I ended up with you guys watching Pulp Fiction <laughs> but then I had to go buy stockings while she was getting her hair done in Chinatown it was like a whole thing and wait you were involved in yeah, this this was kind like of like, we were kind of like um, I don't know it was like being in love but she had a boyfriend you know at the time it sounds like it sounds like that scene in Carrie where they go shopping for their prom, <laughs> prom clothes it's either Carrie you know or when, it, when the camera does that 360 or you're Richard Gere in Pretty Woman and she comes out with different hairdos and different outfits yeah, and I kept going nah. and then you go nah not that one not that no, one no, but I'm seeing the version in Dumb and Dumber which you <laughs> Which with Jeff Daniels is going like, come on, Cinderella, we gotta get you ready for the ball. <laughs> Regardless, I remember her going off and I said goodbye to her, and it was quite. It's one of those young person things where you're experiencing things for the new, new for the first oh, time, completely. and it's like it's like falling in love. It's like full of excitement well, and it's hope. It's a bit of that Linklater before sunrise type. Yeah, thing, yeah, right? definitely, it was like you that. Know, which Linklater yeah. captures the exuberance of that. 
And it was weird because at the time I was like, oh, yeah. But she wasn't going to go with her boyfriend in the form. She was just going to turn up. And I yeah. thought, okay, well, that's, you know, at least I'm not helping someone get ready for their day, which would be strange to meet someone on train and go, <laughs> oh, you know. But I then got the train out to Western Sydney. We got in your car. Yeah. The three of us drove to Penrith Cinemas. Yeah, because Hayden that was also the summer my mum and dad were in South Africa, right. which we talked about last time. Yeah. Right? So we had the car. So we turn up, we go in, we watch, start watching Pulp Fiction. I don't know what the hell's happening. No, neither is. So, I mean, this is the movie, Craig, where you left at the injection scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the adrenaline shot scene. I couldn't handle it. I remember it was specifically it was upstairs in the lounge cinema at Hayden. I guess they didn't believe that it was going to be a big film, so put it in the lounge cinema. Yeah. We were, had to go up the stairs because I remember coming out of the toilet upstairs, Yeah. Uh, 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 the, the cinema, and going, where's the toilet? I was so pale and I felt like I, I was going to pass to you, out. I remember saying to you, like, what the hell happened to you? Like, you've been gone for a while. I think it's because I didn't eat that much and I had that such a big uh, romantic experience, so yeah, to speak, yeah, yeah. on that, that earlier that day that when that needle scene came <laughs> where they've got to resuscitate Irma, yeah. uh, I, it just hit me so big and I just went, I went that, looking that in the mirror actually, sweating. and It affected heaps of people. Mm. That was a very common thing. Because um, lots of people can't handle needles. Yeah, yeah. And this is like... Firstly, it gives you an extreme close-up of the needle with a little drip of... Do you remember the drip of the yeah, liquid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then to slam a needle into someone's chest, mm. which as I... Because when it first happened, I didn't know... Like, I was thinking, why is he stabbing someone with a needle? Why didn't you inject the oh, person? Oh, that's the other thing. But I actually, had... that is what you do with those things. I know. You've got to get it through the... You know when, when we've Lance learned. goes... You gotta get that through the bone. Mm. That's real. But you gotta slam it through that bone. Tarantino was displaying things that were so novel, right? So even if you take the Marcellus Wallace um, sexual assault scene, right? Yeah. Mm. But putting it to the music yes. where Bruce Willis walks in, <laughs> yeah. you compare that to Deliverance, and you got a completely different coding of the event. It's, it's like the, perfect how you say that. Tarantino was almost recoding. Our whole experience of cinema. And like, if yeah, you take that needle scene, yeah. some of the wordsmithing and the playful oh. uh, writing. When when Eric Stoltz says, give me a, a, a black marker. Oh, no, when, when John Travolta goes, give me a, a, a black magic marker. Putting black magic and <laughs> marker together. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking... I mean, but Tarantino with alliteration, he's the greatest alliterator in, I think, screenwriting history. I mean, this event was a, a really formative thing. I remember thinking something on the day mm. and then... S- something later as well. So the first thing on the day was the fact that we were planning to go to an R-rated movie, that was like a rite of passage because, mm. I mean, the gloves come off, right? You're off the leash because you can do anything you <laughs> yeah, want. Yeah. When, when you're 18, you can... It was it was symbolic. Sadly, what we did was yeah. it was apple golf. A lot of people <laughs> would have gone out and gotten drunk uh, at a pub. We were like, nah, man, we're going to go to the movies. <laughs> go, go to an R-rated movie and I, I literally felt that Nothing could stop us. <laughs> the second thing is, um, soon after that, I moved to to ANU to Canberra, so about three hours away from Sydney. For our listeners who don't know where that is, and I and I lived there for about five years, six years, and I had to go two weeks earlier because of the orientation program, right? So I mean, you guys both came and dropped me mm-hmm. off with, yeah. my, with mm-hmm. our parent, Bruce. You, you're my parents, and I remember going through a kind of caucus with a group of people I'd only met a few days previously. I arrived like on a Thursday, and this was maybe Monday, and you lost track of time because there was no classes or anything. It was two weeks before anything started. And I remember I went through a kind of a caucus with people, and then I was trying to say to them, we should all go to see Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and so I dragged about 10 people to go yeah, watch yeah. Pulp Fiction. And this is the event where my next-door neighbor couldn't understand the time difference or the fact that John Travolta died halfway through yeah, the movie. Oh, yes. Yeah, we all funny. couldn't for yeah, yeah. ages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, it's also a marker 
in in my kind of development, in I've left home, I'm making new friends. I don't know any of these people, but I can kind of work through it. It's 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 working out. That movie, yeah, the and movie, like a like there are about sort of ten movies I can think of that are kind that 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 are badges, mm. and that you can. Train spotting was another one, you know, just mm -hmm, after that, mm -hmm. where you bring that up and it's like that signifies something about you. If you go, I'm a Pulp Fiction person, I'm a train spotting person. And if you can talk about But also of things, our age or our generation, yeah. right? That's yeah, what yeah. it signifies. The, the other thing in Pulp Fiction, I remember going to Aquagolf afterwards and I, I, I was thinking Reservoir Dogs is so much better. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I could understand that one. Yes, I think yes. it took me like a week to finally work out what the hell was happening in Pulp Fiction. I was trying because there was no internet back then. You just had yeah, to go yeah. back to the cinema and see it again. Yes. And, I also had that feeling that I, I didn't quite know what I was seeing, but something else had happened. I used to watch a hell of a lot of Dave Letterman, right? Mm. And Bruce Willis came on Dave Letterman. This is about, I don't know, a, a, a week or two, or maybe a week and a half or something before the three of us saw it. And I remember him coming out and he wrote a, you, you know, Bruce Willis was doing like really crazy macho yeah. things at the time. <laughs> he wrote a motorbike onto the, <laughs> onto the stage, onto the yes, stage yes. and he yeah. gets off and Dave like, like shake hands and everything. So he sits down and Dave Letterman starts out by going, Man, this is a wow. Is this an entertaining movie? I don't know what it is, yeah. but what an entertaining movie. And Bruce Willis goes, Thank you, Dave. And he goes down this line of it. And I couldn't understand, I knew nothing more about the movie yeah. when Willis had finished. And I remember coming out of the movie thinking, That's why he couldn't explain the movie because it's really, really hard to explain. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Bruce Willis interview with Letterman is another key point in the whole yep. pop fiction. Um, mythology I mean, that came about. The other thing I want to say is Pulp Fiction was one of my ways into film studies. Yeah. Because within two years, there was a course in, no, within three years, there was a course in the English department year, which was, a, you know, I mean this in the best way. It was, it's a traditional English department. It's the leading English department in the country, right? But within two or three years of Pulp Fiction being released, when I got there to study, there was a course called Postmodernism, and what do you think they put on it? They had Pop Fiction, Blue Velvet, <laughs> and it was, for me, it was a way into, ah, so this is what Tarantino is doing. Like, what is this thing called the postmodern? Mm -hmm. And that stayed with me all through PhD. You know, I wrote the definitive work on, no, I'm only joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look out now. <laughs> All right, so that's that's our experience of watching Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, a, an amazing film. Nice memory. I remember buying the CD. The CD soundtrack was so hot. The, oh is that God. soundtrack still the best soundtrack in film history? <laughs> what is the greatest soundtrack? I, I would put that. It's a, it's a fantastic question. And, you know, you could do like an entire podcast series just on well, film soundtracks. Okay, I thought that maybe that's going to be one of the things I bring up in one of our, you know, that's a beginning episode things, just talking about the songs from the movies. Oh, lovely, oh, I love that yeah, idea. Yeah. All right, let's not talk any more right, about it. That's for another episode. That's our piece on Pulp Fiction when we saw it together and we all bonded into manhood. <laughs> yeah. That was just another rite of passage for yeah. us. It's real men we are. All right. On today's episode, we will feature spoilers for both of the films. But if other films pop up along the way, we're going to do our best not to spoil them. Let's get into it. Take one. Our first film is They Live from 1988. Film director John Carpenter was on one of the greatest streaks of genre filmmaking of the 1970s and 80s. His previous films included Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Thing, The Fog, 
Christine and Escape from New York, just to mention a few. Then in 1988, he embarked on a sci-fi action film that cut a little too close to the political bone for most of the critics and commentators of the day. The story is of an out-of-work drifter known only as Nada. I had no. I, okay. I didn't, is, that, is that that is that's where yeah, you go. I went through the credits yeah, yeah. when I went through the credits. Yeah, it said Nada. I'd Nada. seen that a, a couple, <laughs> maybe twice, two times ago when I, I watched know, the I could, movie. I had to check it. I was yeah. like, Are you serious, Nada? Okay, um, it's like the opposite of Neo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's like Nada, like the Nada, well, yeah, nothing, right? It's yeah, nothing. yeah, it's nothing, yeah. right? And, and Neo is the like the, the new, aftermath the of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, like the antithesis. He's all, yeah. All right. Nada was played by renowned American wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper, who, was, who whilst hanging out amongst the poor and unhoused of Los Angeles, discovers a pair of sunglasses that give him the ability to see the world for what it really is. An environment full of controlling messages, audio speakers that encourage the population to remain asleep, and alien humanoids who monitor and control the human population. Eventually, our hero joins with his new friend, found friend Frank to blow up the satellite dish that is broadcasting the alien's cloaking signal across the city. The movie features the plot device of a pair of sunglasses to reveal the hidden world, and when a character is using them, the footage is desaturated and all printed material is replaced by white sites with simple typeface messages such as consume, stay asleep, and most famously, obey. The aliens, when seen, are presented with skeletal faces and grey circular eyes. The movie made its money back in opening week in cinema and a further $10 million after that. The film received mixed reviews, but in the decades that followed has become a much-loved cult classic, both for its subversive theme and its violent and camp execution. Bruce, what's your take on They Live? It's so hard to even encompass what this movie is. I can't. I had such fun watching it <laughs> yeah. over the last week or so. I mean, I've seen it before, and I should also say, like, I am obsessed with John Carpenter. Mm. We, all just, we, I mean, we are. We are obsessed all big with John fans, Carpenter, mm-hmm. right? And in a way, we kind of love genre. And John Carpenter is one of the most imaginative genre filmmakers in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's like a. To me, he's like a John Ford, right? John Ford made westerns. This guy made everything. Yeah. And. Always imaginable and always inventive, but they live is 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 even in John Carpenter's corpus, strange, <laughs> right? Um, so there's two things I wanted to talk about. Number one, for me, this movie is almost a work of film and cultural theory, mm. and it's so. I'm not saying John Carpenter's got his head in, in film theory, but it's so transparently part of the world of political theory that was huge in the 60s and 70s. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I just want to take issue with that statement that you don't, <laughs> think, John, that you don't think John Carpenter's got his head in film theory. Because <laughs> about two years ago when I watched this movie, the last time before this time, I started going to YouTube. Yeah. And I was YouTubing John Carpenter, They Live. And mm. he's done a, he did a series of interviews with reporters and stuff for different movies. And I'm, I'm being facetious. No, I'm course. being sarcastic. Totally yeah, yeah. But when you have a conversation with John Carpenter, like, for example, and I think you'll touch on this, Bruce, he can do anything in a movie, right? So they go to him, 
what about the the music and the soundtrack in this? He goes, yeah, well, I had this idea, and then I did that as well, and I did the editing, and I did all of this. <laughs> so the guy is thinking very holistically yes. about his projects, right? About the only thing he didn't do, like, 99% of everything on yeah. was, I think, Starman, because he brought in some collaborators. And that was a big that was studio, a big, yeah, big studio yeah, budget. But you, you stripped down the John Carpenter stuff, and John Carpenter is a is a genius. Yeah, he does I everything. Mean, I mean, I love that he gave the things music to Morricone. Like I'm like, oh, yeah, that actually was a wise move. Yes. Like I love his music all the time. Anyway, but that the music that um, Nino did for that yeah. was yeah. off the chain. And the beat in the background. But in, was, in yeah. regards to John, uh, his own knowledge of his films, I remember the magazine, like a film magazine, growing up. I spoke to the editor when I was older. Yeah, right. And uh, there was always a thing where they asked the filmmaker ten questions about their own films, yeah. and they would rate them. And the guy that got ten out of ten. Quentin Tarantino the guy yeah. that got one out of ten John Carpenter <laughs> really <laughs> he had no knowledge or memories like well, I don't care like because he it's bullshit it's the details you see on trivia yeah, on yeah, IMDB yeah, yeah. it's like what brand gun was he holding in this scene he's like I don't know so you mean Tarantino was Tarantino so had, in his world he knew but he's got that memory of course and, you know, and he's got and, that and, yeah. and um, Carpenter's just like I don't know I, I, I don't why, why are you the, asking in the interviews that I watched he's <laughs> also like a chain smoker yeah so he's just like Going away, and the person's asking him a question, and he's going, uh, like, he's, he's, he's disconnected <laughs> yeah, yeah, in that yeah. way. But I get the sense that he was in his own world a lot. Mm. In the, in but the, I think in he's also jaded by popular film, you know, institutions, you know, like newspapers, magazines and stuff. Because, you know, he's gone through a strange career, mm. right, where he was the darling, and he was making these movies that always made back lots of money. Mm. And then, you know, obviously he hasn't been around for 20-something. He hasn't really done anything significant for such a long time. He's released albums and he loves to play computer games. That's he his does life. So, and yeah. he's massive into the computer games. The other thing games. I do want to say yeah. about John Carpenter is the reason I think we also love him is because he's a bit like Tarantino in that he loves the history of cinema. Mm. So he's often connected to and has espoused a deep love for um, Howard Hawks. So when you watch John Carpenter, there's so much Howard Hawks in what he does, like like Rio Bravo, if people have seen that, or um, and the, the thing's a remake of Howard Hawks, 1950s, the thing, that's right, or whatever. Yeah, right? so yeah, so yeah. he right. he is almost like lifted Howard Hawks mm. into the contemporary, but he's always playing around with it, right? So okay, why I say this is a work of film theory? There's a movement in the 60s in France called the Situationists. Right, Whoa. and the guy that led that, or who was really the most influential, is a guy called Guy Debord. Right, D E B O R D. People want to check it out, and he wrote a, a like one of the most influential works of what I would consider cultural theory, which is called. Have you guys heard of the Society of the Spectacle? No. Mm-mm. See that I go the one of the most influential works, <laughs> and I, I just get a nut from both here. And then I, okay, yeah. no, we're, we're watching like midnight football. run. It's <laughs> yeah. like midnight run where he calls up John Ashton. And he goes, "Have you heard of the the Duke?" And he goes, "I never heard of him." <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie that it was John Ashton. Um, okay, Society of the Spectacle. This is what it it puts forward right as a theory. We, I mean, he's writing in the late sixties. The world, Europe the States especially, had increasingly become immersed in, like, spectacles of things, Mm -hmm. TV, movies, media, and that the theory is it's stripping away our ability to engage with what's real. And, in fact, what's real just becomes another spectacle, right? So if you apply that to they live, that's exactly what they live is, that I can't 
see the world as it is unless I put on these sunglasses. So for John Carpenter, the kind of political allegory, which is really simple, is we are late 1980s. It's the Reagan era. John Carpenter is a, you know, he's a classic lefty. He's mm. a lefty liberal uh, in, in the sort of you know, genre system. So all his movies have a political edge to them. Uh, and I would say a kind of left-leaning, yeah. you know, if you've seen Escape from New York. If he was president, he'd be left of Jimmy Carter. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's, a left, he's a lefty filmmaker. And there were heaps of them, right? So all of his movies have this kind of subtext of, I want to take on capitalism. I want to take on the man. I want to take on consumerism. So... But I just want to say that idea is so steeped in political theory in the 60s and 70s. And why Society of the Spectacle for me is the clear lead into They Live is because that's what Debord says. You're not being manipulated by like military or by politicians. You've been manipulated by the spectacle of like media stories and news and Debord wouldn't say that, hey, when you look at something, it's like it's, it's hidden from you. Mm. But that's the subtext of it. The real world is totally hidden. You can't see it. All you're seeing is the stuff shown to you. And like, think of it as like the Matrix or, you know, they're all the same story all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see the Just, real world because there's a world of illusion everywhere. Just by coincidence, I listened to a podcast. I don't know, Bruce, you might put me onto this, but I listened to a podcast called Philosophize This, yeah, which, I, great which I love. Um, In fact, we should sometimes shout out to other uh, podcasts. Sure. Philosophize This is brilliant. And I forget the dude's name, but he's the most wonderful articulator of complicated philosophy. And the and he starts all the way, the history of all philosophy. Unbelievable. Anyway, so he does a fantastic job in a, in a recent series of talking about the spectacle. He goes back to Baudrillard and then about representation. And I, when I saw They Live for This, it took me back to the oh, Philosophize totally. series. I mean, and so, so the spectacle so thing really resonates. The board comes... 20 years before Baudrillard, right? Mm. Baudrillard's oh, so the guy... Oh, so beats Baudrillard, you say? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway, like, to, yeah. to give everyone an example of the degree to which these theories I'm talking about are in the mainstream, if you watch The Matrix really carefully, uh, in the opening sequence where... Remember when they uh, when Neo, he's selling uh, illicit software? You know, yeah, the girl yeah. with the, the, the rabbit, yeah, the, the white, white rabbit? rabbit. Yeah, yeah. When he goes to the uh, bookshelf to retrieve it, yeah. he takes out a book and it's hidden inside the book, the little mm -hmm. software thing. That book is called Simulacra and Simulations by Jean Baudrillard. And the Wachowskis required everybody, all of them, Keanu, to have read that book. They had to know that book for that movie. <laughs> they required them to have read it, but not necessarily to have understood Not necessarily to have Only yeah. about two or three people They just had to read the, the world, simulation, not, not the simulacra. <laughs> so it's a hard book to understand. Right? Keanu Reeves applied it again in but John Wick, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say it's a Bible, right? And Jean Baudrillard actually came out to Sydney Uni, and my wow. PhD supervisor was in the audience when he gave his big talk, right? And uh, Jean Baudrillard famously wrote a series of uh, essays that could easily have been written by John Carpenter for They Live. And the essays were The Gulf War uh, Will Not Happen, The Gulf War Is Not Happening, and The Gulf War Never Happened. Now, we do know The Gulf War Happened, mm. but his theory was. The war you think you're seeing is not real. You're only seeing it as a spectacle. Again, Guy Debord, right? Using the same mm -hmm. language. And that goes anyway, and, and my, I just want to say, my supervisor goes, I found it so frustrating. <laughs> and I was becoming increasingly angry as he was talking because people were dying overseas. Yeah. And he goes, I wanted to like get like a kitchen knife and walk up the front and stab him with it and go, see? 
There is blood when you stab a person. Whoa. <laughs> and I just remember, because the, the, this these were the heady days of postmodernism. We had all these philosophers going, we don't know anything. Nobody knows anything. Like, we're, we're all having things pulled over eyes. And at the same time, you got John Carpenter releasing They Live mm. to, a, to a big audience, right? Which is like... Um, capitalism is duping you. You don't know what's going on. It, we have the same stuff now, except John Carpenter was willing to take it on in a genre movie. Now, I think and we're going to talk a lot more about this because it raises an issue that Tyrone's got in it as well. Mm-hmm. So where does where do you cross from the fun kind of depiction? And They Live is one of the most fun times you can have with a movie. Roddy <laughs> um, Roddy Piper, are you serious? That's a great performance, isn't Wow, it? what a performance. But how do you cross from that into genuine social commentary because in both our movies today, yeah. there are people, and I've been doing a bit of reading, especially Tyrone, I've been doing a bit of reading of it, and there are people who take these films to be serious, social, critical, cultural commentary. But I mean, okay, is that how you guys saw they yeah, n- Yes. So did I. I mean, but wait, this is when when I saw it, mm. I was my mind melted more so <laughs> more so than the Matrix. I think yeah, like they live was well. A, this is much more a, on the nose, right? Yeah, but yeah, I'm not I'm not very bright. <laughs> I'm watching. <laughs> I remember the VHS right in, yeah. in the video store, and it had the coolest cover. It was yeah. that genre of '80s posters where someone's looking over the top of some yes. sunglasses. Yeah, and but in this one, it's like in the reflection is an alien bad guy, and I'm like, what the hell, man? This is yeah. going to be cool. And I remember watching it as a young uh, mid-teen and it blew my mind yeah. like I had no idea and I did an experiment just like on Tyrone <laughs> uh, the boy I live with Kick 13 year old I said come in and watch this and I fortunately watched the first f- 35 minutes and I went great so he's just found these glasses watch this and he sat and watched the rest of the film with me and I remember watching him watch it so what was his reaction? Because I'd be very interested to Because well, I should say for the audience as well, Bruce and I know Kick because Kick knows my Your son, son Lockie yes. through soccer and school, yeah. right? Yeah. Kick's okay. a really interesting geek. He's really sharp, right? Yeah, so, he's real sharp. So what I think was he, his... I think the campness or the the, the, yeah. the, the hokiness of the film yeah. lets him down And now. a rowdy roddy. Right? Yeah, yeah, the acting. And then as it continued on and then it just fell into some sort of... And that's always my biggest criticism of Carpenter. When it falls into just sort of dodgy yeah. uh, genre tropes to end the film, it's like like Prince of Darkness is an amazing philosophical, <laughs> uh, philosophical debate about yeah. science versus um, belief. And then it just turns Until into... Until the last 50, yeah, yeah, and then it's, it's just like uh, uh, yeah, a crowd of people trying to break into yes. a house again. It's like, oh. But when he gets it right, like yes, in he the does. thing, yes. it's uncompromising, then he's the greatest. But see, I don't right? think he gets it wrong in the live because I love Rowdy Roddy and his sidekick <laughs> who people will remember from There's Something About Mary. He's, yeah, but he's uh, also in the he's thing. Mary's stepfather. I mean, he's the last he's in the thing, of, the of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I love when they take on the place. And am I asking questions about continuity or for example yeah cuz how can they, how can no they end up in the exact place and they get into the exact studio see i'm not asking those questions and if you want to go one step further they take a turn into a corridor with the machine guns and that and when they cut away for a moment they cut back they're like at a completely different point in the corridor they're <laughs> pointing in a different director a direction Rowdy roddy i think maybe they filmed it a couple of days apart or something he's thinking something different in his emotions <laughs> so i love all of that craziness because it adds to the craziness and the and the and the, and the and the randomness of the movie. I, yeah. I, this is something I was just thinking about because you were saying about political. Um, uh, you were saying something I wasn't no, listening. Like an, al- like an allegory, every right? Every car- Carpenter movie is an allegory. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about John Waters, who I'm just getting yeah, yeah. into. But I'm late to the game there, but the form itself, 
you can't uh, mistake any single scene or moment or performance as not being John Waters making yeah. a point. Yes. And then the film itself makes a general point, a bigger point, but then every single moment it's like, okay, camp is camp. Yeah, fuck, just subvert everything. Yep. Screw gender, That's right. screw everything, right? I love that, subvert yeah. everything. That's but Carpenter. the thing with Carpenter, though, sometimes I'm looking at it going, oh, but you, you don't have that dedication that Walters was able to find with some of the performances, with some of the story elements. He keeps it on that the entire time. And it is a, a crazy motive for storytelling, John Walters. Yeah. But you look at some of Carpenter's, I'm like, oh, that's just sometimes it's like you're forgotten or it's dodgy or bad acting. But also acting I think or... it's different. I think there's that. Mm. There's, like, there's a lot of contingency in Carpenter. Like you can tell... Okay, he's got Rowdy Roddy, right? Mm. He's good, but Kurt Russell would have been a lot better. <laughs> yeah. So why didn't they get Kurt Russell? Well, maybe Russell, you know, he was hitting a big at this time, late 1980s. Kurt Russell was a big star. So you get Kurt Russell, the budget doubles overnight. Now, I, so what does Rowdy Roddy bring to it? Well, I don't know about you, Craig. He brings the WWF. Well, That's so what he brings that, to it. Exactly. <laughs> Before oh, they went through a lawsuit and had to change the name to WWE, they were WWF. <laughs> so I just want to say, what he brings to it. if you watch this movie and yes. you know something about wrestling, yeah. It's a totally different movie. No, and that's and I because we grew up remember wrestling was hard to watch. It was only on a Saturday Saturday at mornings. The, yeah, yeah. No, it was Saturday Hirsch and I used to watch it on Saturday mornings. It was it was something you had to search for. It wasn't yeah. as predominant in Australia to find, to be able to watch. So I don't think I was wrestling literate, yeah, yeah. so to speak, when I first watched They Live. I was more movie literate yep. and I was yep. like, oh, But we yeah. were wrestling literate, but I didn't know Rowdy Roddy until they live. We came up through the Andre the Giant, Hulk yep. Hogan, Randy Savage. Those yeah, people. But, it, no, see, but, I, but I'm not even yeah. talking about personas or, or actual wrestling stars. I'm talking about a kind of aesthetic in WWF yes. that Carpenter is absolutely bringing what, into they live. I didn't notice that till this watching right. with Kick, and I'm going, oh, I can like, see you know the, 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 famous, seven, the fight famous fight scene. I'm okay. going, dude, that's all because these moves. guys are wrestlers. Yeah. That's like, why did you I'm notice so, that? Yeah. yeah. That's just the, that was <laughs> for me. That was like a big WrestleMania bout, and I was enjoying it so much because I watched this stuff. What about um? Like I, I think one person does like a, a, a throw over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know, normally in a movie, the person lands maybe two meters away, mm. like in a Van Damme movie. Mm. person gets thrown about like 10 meters yeah. across the room. Because it's all performative. But it's, I love it. I love it so much because you watch martial arts films, right? And then you see the martial artists training. It's yeah. in their body and they do certain things and it's exciting, right? Then you watch American action films where the performers don't have that training and that ability and it's all done with cutting. They have mm. to cut around yes. the stuff. You watch a Jackie Chan movie, you keep the camera wide and you leave it rolling and it nothing needs to yep. cut. American action, you need to cut. This had sequences where I'm like, no one's cutting. They are just performing that thing. And sure, the punches are, p- are badly not pulled <laughs> in know, certain frames. <laughs> but sometimes when the frame is correct and they can able, they, they do do a sequence and the camera's in the right spot, which is, I'm like, come on, Carpenter, get, yeah. help them out, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Move the camera around so you can hide those punches that it's so much air. But then there are also things like your over-the-shoulder throw. They know how to land it yeah. and then get up and start performing again, I'm which is amazing. Roddy Roddy choreographed a lot of that, right? Yeah. They would have worked with the stunt people and my favorite moment is when the uh, the guy runs at Rowdy and he coat hangers him. He sticks his arm <laughs> yeah, out yeah, yeah. and he coat hangers There's him. also a scene Which in is it. so funny. I think John Carpenter's sitting there going, okay, this is looking good, but let's take it up even a notch. Let's make it even a little bit crazier. There's a scene where somebody does attempts like a, a kick, like a round-ass <laughs> kick. But you know, and, and Craig, this goes to your point. Yeah. With, if you do Jackie Chan round-ass or Van Damme round-ass versus um, Lawrence Fishburne round-ass or yeah, something yeah. like that, right? The key distinction is... The person who isn't a martial arts specialist, they can't get the roundhouse 
above their waist. <laughs> they don't have the, they don't have flexibility. In this round, it's at knee level. <laughs> like, but but I think Carpenter's going. It's a sweep. That's exactly it's what a, I'm it's after. It's a sweep. That's yeah. exactly what I'm after. Yeah. I just, and they're I, like big bulky blokes, right? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it looks awesome. everything is hammy. Like there's nothing. Um, this is not John Carpenter, Assault and Precinct 13, or the thing. This mm. is John Carpenter. Big Trouble in Little China era, yeah. right? And it works beautifully. Those two movies are, in fact, companion pieces, I think. There's two things I wanted to ask both of you from my take on the, on the live when I was watching it. One is, do you both remember the TV show that, that took the world by storm? Remember V? Yes. The aliens? Yeah. So I saw V. Now, I, was, I, I'm not, I think V came before they lived. We should say V was like a mid-'80s yeah. um, it was sci-fi. Before. Mark Singer. Yeah, it was yes. prime time. When Mark Singer was gonna, supposed to go on to become like the biggest movie star in yeah. the world or whatever... Um, v was huge. The second thing I but, wanted to ask. Wait, yeah. and V was about aliens coming to Earth, but they were secretly they hidden. Colonized, right? they, 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 they hadn't colonized. They'd landed, and yeah. they were under the guise of, we want to be peaceful cohabitants of yes, the planet. Yeah. But, but in had, fact, they were working in the background to, to, to take but over. But they had human bodies, so it's very much they live. And yeah. a rebellion um, learns of the fact that they're actually aliens, and then... There are people, same like they live, there are powerful elites mm. in, you know, the, the, the white rich society of Earth um, collaborating with the aliens to take over the planet eventually. So it's basically they live. Weren't they kind of like lizard people? Yeah, yeah exactly. lizard people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, which so is where I think form. all that David Icke and a lot of yep. the stuff, it used to be so much easier to make fun of conspiracy theorists <laughs> because you could say the lizard people yep. and then you shut it down, the blue and bloods. I but nowadays the conspiracy is like, oh, no, the anti-vaxxers like and stuff. And stuff yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, one thing I want to say is, isn't it amazing? Like, V is a, a fantastic touchstone for what we're talking about. But is it incredible in the Reagan years, but particularly from the mid-'80s, we start to see the explosion of the allegory of we are in a world where we are being controlled. Mm. And that's just – the 1980s is that era, right? Conspiracy theories abound because there's this fundamental concern that I am not in control of my life and people are doing stuff to me. Yeah. So that takes us beautifully into the X-Files. And the X-Files brings it all together. Right? I agree. but the, I, I completely agree with that. But then I think there's another very important shift. And I, for me, I think it's September 11. See, I think after September 11 – the rise of nationalism became such an important thing that you pull back from the conspiracy theory and you pull back from the, the license or the agency to actually look at your own society and critique it. And you've now got to embrace a kind of, you know, we're afraid of the other, yeah. right? What you mean a, the other non-national, exactly, the other exactly. outside, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think but that's so, so what true. I'm going to talk about with Tyrone especially is I think we're going through something of a shift again where it's okay to pull back and not be 100% um, authentic or investigative or something about these complex issues and you can sometimes just resort to what they live as and that's oodles of entertainment and violence and fun. What yeah. do you both think of two of the final shots of, the, of They Live, which are two of my favourite shots and it really does sort of set the tone for me in the way I think about They Live. Mm. Okay, Rowdy Roddy gets shot or he dies at the end, he gets gunned down by the helicopter mm-hmm. And then he turns over and he gives the helicopter the finger, <laughs> number one. See, but the, totally. That's one of the great. That is on the mark. And yet I can't think of another movie where <laughs> you would ever see anything That's like one of the that, great right? shots. And Roddy Roddy's face, he gets a degree of like gravitas that Schwarzenegger never reached. Van Damme can't reach It's an it. act of martyrdom, really. <laughs> but it's the most 
unusual kind of master in history. But it's his finger comes up at the speed that Schwarzenegger's thumb comes up in Terminator <laughs> 2. It's not like a sticking it to the man. It's like his finger comes up and yeah. then he dies. Okay, now when I was young, I th- I'm sure that would have been the coolest thing I've ever seen in yeah, my yeah. life. When I was watching it with the boy, with 13-year-old, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Man, I, I loved it. When I saw his fi- when his finger comes up again, I've seen this finger come up a few times now. When I saw it come You're up the it other replay. day, I, I, I just got a massive smile on my face. Yeah. The last scene in the entire movie... The, the man and the woman are having sex. I don't know, maybe it's... Oh, my and, God. And then <laughs> she says, so, I just remembered that. So oh, my yeah. God. The gratuitous nudity. And then when he breaks the receiver and she can see that she's with an alien. Yeah. And, and she looks down and, he, and the alien looks up and he goes, what's wrong, baby? <laughs> and then the movie cuts the credits. <laughs> what? That's, what? That's, that I love that mark. ending. Yeah, it's a great question ending. Mark. I think it's. A I great love that? that. But what does that mean? No, no, it's no, like no, the it's, so it's fact that people around the world now rec- they yes. can see the alien for because yes. obviously the receiver's broken. But it's, but it's also, as you say, that's exploitation at its. Yeah. At it's its core, John Carpenter right? really bookending what I think his project is about. Um, I'm not in a church sermon trying to educate you about the mm. world. I'm going to present the way certain things in the world look. I don't have an overarching paradigm that can solve all the world's repressing problems, but this is the way I see it, and there's comedy in it, oh, and yeah. I think Tyrone it's, captures a bit of this. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. it's so interesting that you've brought that up because one of the big criticisms at the time in reviewers was saying this is too heavy-handed. Well, Did you I, read that? I mean, yeah, well, no, I've read that, and yeah. that was a common response at the time. We, as you say, Craig, the movie has now become a cult favorite among so many people, yeah. so even Carpenter fans. I reckon what it was was... American cinema in 1988 was really serious, right? Mm. I mean, what won that year? I think Rain Man won Best Picture, mm-hmm. right? So you got a guy like John Carpenter who's making a – it's virtually a, a 95-minute tongue-in-cheek movie, yeah. right? The whole movie. The, and it begins with a casting of Rowdy Roddy, as a, who's a wrestler. Who puts a wrestler as leading man in a film? But I heard right? that there was uh, – maybe he'd been vocal about Reagan before. Yeah. Because all of the reviews seem to say something like, oh, he's taken his Reagan, yeah. you know, critique oh, no, he, of Reaganism. He was very critical of Reagan. Yeah. But he had done this through the 1980s. So, like I was saying before, everything he did, every movie, I think you have to read as a kind of allegory mm. uh, and, and a kind of anti – not only anti-Reaganism, but anti-Reaganite cinema. Mm. So there was so much – like, you know, you think about the, the Rambo movies. They're just like – Reagan nationalist fantasies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to subdue everybody as an American military machine. I think people didn't like how obvious, you know, like consume, capitalism is bad, etc. It's so, there's no subtlety, there's no nuance. I reckon that is a completely misguided re- reaction to the film in 1988 mm-hmm. because you can... Yes, it's obvious what's going on, but it's an incredibly subversive take politically at that time. But it's also because during Reaganism and then into, you know, into Bush one and all that sort of thing, the environment didn't exist to make this kind of commentary. It wasn't that kind of world. So Carpenter comes into it just by the fact that he's making this kind of movie. That is itself subversive. It's anti-establishment. The other thing I want to say about that is, do you remember we had Leonard Maltin's movie guide and... I 
looking at the thing. Yeah, we as always I've loved brought the it theme. to school. Yeah, you're your marking ups. We always love the thing, right? Yeah. And I remember when Leonard Malton, we went to look at the the review and it had two stars, and it said something like uh, John, you know, something like John Carpenter once again fails to 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 uh, achieve anything significant in his filmmaking. I find it hard to be. I mean, having said that, you know, he was doing two and a half stars for Blade Runner and stuff like that. Yeah. But Carpenter was the recipient of some very unfair criticism yeah, throughout absolutely. the 80s yeah. career, really. Almost more than any other filmmaker. I, he's up there with De Palma in the way people just completely misunderstood Well, in him. a modern context, he's but up there with Adam Sandler. Wait, did anyone else absolutely. see... So Adam Sandler's made brilliant films, but because of, of Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison, everyone mm. just... The, the, the default position is, he's an idiot, this is crap, and you're going to have to do so much to convince me otherwise, right? And so occasionally you get an uncut gems that's highly regarded. It's the same with Carpenter. I feel that... He was treated so unfairly because even movies like The Thing and Assault and Precinct 13 were not necessarily received well because they were straight genre. And the mm. 80s was an era where genre was either big budget studio like Rambo or what Carpenter was doing. And Carpenter was always a bit camp, right? And it the only thing that it didn't the only fit. outlier is a little bit is big trouble in Little China because nobody actually understood yeah, but what the hell was going on. Well, like, I mean, what that, was it? Th there's a camp film, mm. right? But yeah. Carpenter, I love that he didn't apologize for it. You know, one of my favorite homages to cinema is Carpenter doing the commentary on the Blu-ray for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. And if you listen to Carpenter talk, you can hear the adulation. And for me, there's such a deep love of genre in Carpenter. That you just get, you can just see it, right? And I think people just didn't get that. Like, we are not good as a critical, um, uh, you know, like critical critical discourse on genre is terrible. Like, it's just but people don't get it. Because genre's always been a dirty word. It's always it's a dirty been... word. It's um, it's like you are not serious. Oh, why are you wasting your time doing a murder mystery? Why are you wasting your time doing a western? You should, you know, like you go to um, f film schools are. You tell your own story. Tell yeah, yeah. No. But also, like, remember, even in the 90s, there were no, we didn't do movies in high school. They do that now. Yeah, I know. That genre make... was like, it was lowbrow, and it was also the lowest of the lowbrow, because yep. it's movies, popular cinema. Yep. It's and not they live is lower than anything yeah. lowbrow that you can almost, because they live is not just genre, it's exploitation, Right. So All that's right. very low, bro. We should move on. A couple of three low dogs in the room <laughs> at Sydney Uni. Sucked in Sydney Uni. We're here. We're moving on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is 2023's They Cloned Tyrone. Filmmaker Jewel Taylor had directed some episodes of Streamers as well as his own short films, but was making a name for himself as the screenwriter with shared credits on Creed 2 and Space Jam 2. In 2019, the script for this project was hot property on the blacklist, and over the following year, the project was put together with Netflix to be released this year. The film tells the story of Fontaine, a drug dealer from the hood, played by John Boyega. Did I say that right? Boyega, yeah. Yeah. Who, despite being shot to death, finds himself waking up and slowly unraveling the mystery of what has happened. He's joined by, and to use the film's vernaculars, a pimp, played by Oscar winner Jamie Foxx, and a hoe, played by Tiana Paris. Yeah, Tiana Paris. Yeah. Okay, good. The trio become a makeshift detective team who unravel a large conspiracy by an underground white organisation who uses popular black products and subliminal messaging to keep the hood under their control. 
The trio then develop a plan to overthrow this secret organisation and release the clones that are being kept in storage. The film is a strong homage to blaxploitation cinema, a genre and form that reached the peak of its popularity during the 1970s. It's evident with the characters, performance, art direction and musical score, whilst the film also delves strongly into sci-fi tropes and mind-bending narratives. Released only a few months ago on Netflix around the world, it has received mostly positive reviews and as is the dilemma of Netflix's lack of transparency, we have no idea how many people have seen it. Herschel, you saw this film first and you told us we had to watch it. You even mentioned that after seeing the Barbie movie as an example of a film that connects to a specific community. What's your take on They Clone Tyrone? Okay, thanks, Craig. Now... I saw They Clone Tyrone on the same weekend that I saw Barbie. Mm -hmm. Prior to the screening of Barbie, people were already saying, okay, what's going to be, what's the social commentary going to be like? What's the critical commentary going to be like? Interestingly for me, Tyrone came out on Netflix and it was getting some publicity, but I think any commentary around that vein was, was really sort of overtaken. Well, overwhelmed by 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 the the, the talk and around I think the Barbie that movie. Shows the fact that I didn't one I didn't know about it. If I wouldn't have watched the version I yeah, mentioned yeah. it, because it just you know Netflix releases so much content. But interesting, I, I mean I'm shocked that the movie didn't get a whole lot of yeah. more exposure. They well, put it in a cinema for one week in the US before they amazing? did the streaming. I, I yeah. In another world, this is a big move. It's gaining right? It's gaining in, in retrospect, I think. Now that it's got a little bit of space to breathe, people can come back to Tyrone. Um, it's gaining a following, especially, you know, in, in, in that kind of critical commentary, but also in the Jackie Brown kind of exploitation kind of mm, thing. It's, yeah. gaining, it's gaining credence in that space But also, as I well. think, in the wake of um, Dude from Get Out, Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan Peele. Jordan yeah, Peele, so right? I mean, Jordan Peele's almost like relayed the groundwork for a kind of mature black exploitation. Mm. Yeah. So I'm gonna go straight into my take because I think um, the best the best that we can do is just to discuss it because there's yeah. a whole lot to unpack here. Yeah. Right. My take is this. It goes back to what I was saying just you know in the in the they live discussion. I think we've gone through a period of such staged and upfront social critical commentary that you have to be 100% discussing what is right and what is wrong, what is the complexity, and I'm going to provide a solution to you. I think we've come through a paradigm um, and a, a kind of structure of that commentary for a long time in film, but also in, in society to some extent, political discussion. This movie for me is I'm going to display what's happening, some of the you know, some of the disadvantages people have, some of the very big issues. But at the same time, I don't have a solution to it. For me, it's also a violent kind of throwback to black exploitation. It, at times, is making blame and responsibility very complex. It, it's a throwback to they live. Mm. I'm going to say that um, Jewel Taylor was in an interview recently, and he said that a movie like this is always going to be compli complicated. So if you ever depict a black person eating chicken, you're already in trouble. That's mm -hmm. that he said, is that what he said in the interview. Isn't that interesting? And he, and he said So even as a black director, he was Absolutely. saying that. So yeah. he said oh, in the interview... Remember Green Book? We had the trouble <laughs> well, we're having so, with that. But yeah, but, that was, it's a, but the trouble... A lot of that trouble derived from the fact that this was a white guy trying mm. to tell a certain kind and of And directed by history. Farrelly's. Yeah, yeah. Right? Whereas Jewel Taylor is regarded as like, you know, part of this vanguard of black filmmakers trying to use genre mm. to challenge the white depiction of black America. 
Now, obviously, Bruce, you and I, nothing to do with the, the black African-American community, but we did grow up in apartheid South Africa. Yeah. So that community discussion that we had in relation to Barbie, the reason I watched Tyrone was because I'd, I'd read a couple of things about it through my news feeds. And I thought, okay, I want to I wanna, I wanna watch this because it has, I think it has something interesting to say, and I think mm. it does. Uh, Jewel Taylor said that basically, and this is, a, you know, kudos to us for pairing these two movies together. We didn't know this at all, I should say to listeners, but he said it's basically they live and the Truman Show smashed together. Mm. <laughs> and there's a little bit of Matrix thrown in there, a little bit of Manchurian Candidate. Tone-wise, we were inspired by Jackie Brown, Boogie Nights, and The Big Lebowski. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Because that really reflects our previous conversation, that Jewel Taylor is actually calling out the tonal aspects of the movie. Like when he goes... It's They Live. Okay, the story is very much They Live, right? I mean, in fact, it's almost the same story. Uh, when I was watching it, I was going, I can't believe we picked these two movies because <laughs> They Live is pretty much They Clone Tyrone. But you can see that he's not just interested in the political message is from They Live, but he's saying tonally, like we picked up Jackie Brown, we got Boogie Nights, we got They Live. So all the kind of tongue-in-cheeks, like Jamie Foxx's performance, which I know you'll talk about, you have to appreciate that as yeah. a knowing reference to the past or you're just going to be really frustrated with that mm. movie because he's, some of what he says is so nuts. Well, right? I can, can I say my experience watching it with Belinda, my friend again, yeah. um, we didn't know anything about it. So the first 15 minutes, up until the point where they finally go out and get chicken and sit down and start <laughs> laughing, we were like, the fuck is this movie? <laughs> it's the biggest tryhard. It wasn't like it wasn't – there was nothing indicating that it was – tongue-in-cheek black exploitation. Right. It was just like, does someone think they are black exploitation? What the hell's going on? And then when they got to the chicken, they start laughing and it starts to become knowing a bit. Yeah. That's when it was like, oh, this is really good It's movie. very clever. Oh, my so God. the other yeah. thing I want to say Very sophisticated. The one thing I'm uh, that, that I sort of thought again and again was, I want to draw a strong line in the sand between a straight-up commentary on, you know, African-American society and what's occurred with it, something like Green Book, for example, mm. and something like this film. So we get all the tropes of oppression, but we also get the sense of the drug community and the concept that John Boyega's character, um, uh, Fontaine, is actually created and empowered to keep the community behaving in a particular mm -hmm. yep. way. But Fontaine also chooses to not move on with it. And it's only, um, it's Yo-Yo's character, Tayona Paris, who convinces him to actually rebel. So it's not a movie that's saying, these are the good people, these are the bad people. Kiefer Sutherland says, everybody's got a boss. And I think that's yeah. a very important line. Yeah. But he, in, in terms of this film, he's the villain. And he says, well, what is the United States? It's a failed experiment. You know, it's created by a group of white people and they left us with the bill. So all we're trying to do is trying to resolve the issues yeah. that we have in I the mean, United the States. The really weird subversive thing is the whole thing is a utopian experiment mm. to, you know, ultimately the goal is to assimilate black people into yeah. white America. And ultimately, you know, that's going to include whitening your skin. You know, like the gags of Michael Jackson early on are really mm. neat foreshadowing. About, you know, th that's the kind yes. of joke. Yeah. I mean, that, the, Mike, Michael's part of... 
you know, Michael's being whitened. And, you know, you've right. got the, the white guy that was given an afro. It's possibly part of the, uh, the uh, evolution absolutely. of the experimentation. So it's very clear. There are all these little gags along the way that, that you've got to watch really carefully to pick up mm. what it's doing. It's also critical of, I think, of the characters in the film, the three key characters who form the Nancy Drew team, yes. right? The, the, I love the, 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 the small rebellion. Re- Herschel and I read about it. Did you read Nancy Drew, Craig? I didn't. No, 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 no. So I love that she had all the Nancy Drews because that was because that itself is a throwback to yeah. 80s. And she got right? my 70s, girl, Nancy 80s. Drew. So Yeah, I love that. So the three of them form this kind of rebellion. But having said that, Taylor, the director, makes it very clear. And, you know, quoting Jamie Foxx, mm. he goes, you is a hoe, I'm a pimp. And you're a drug dealer. And yeah. I think that's an important statement because that's the reality of the situation. Yes. Now, if you want to dig down into the trenches and try to come up with a cohesive social commentary about these people were created or those people are the bad people, I don't think the film operates on that level at all. And I don't think They Live operates on that level or Roddy Roddy Piper wouldn't be giving someone the finger as his last <laughs> yeah. no, last breath. I, I, I love what <sighs> you're Because I always make a distinction between like allegory or, or political commentary, whatever you want to call it, and didacticism, right? So didacticism is when you're trying to teach me a lesson by watching this. Like you're trying to teach me a lesson in race. I don't think either they live or they clone Tyrone. Uh, they're not didactic works where I'm sitting there going, oh, man, you're just trying to like show me or you know, give me this political line and I'm going to be better for it. Like that's Green Book. Yeah. That's why I can't handle Green Book, right? Yeah. What There's a political commentary but both Carpenter and Jill Taylor kind of give it they, – they give their tropes space to breathe a bit. So there's playfulness. There's campness. There's the fact that the black people are being assimilated, but there's a kind of freedom in their drug community. Like mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a degree of kind of um, – I don't know what the word for it is, like fun and play in that community that's not in the white community. The white community is kind of completely staid and boring, right? I should also say that I'm not in any way saying, for example, that the commentary around where Kiefer Sutherland is saying, we're doing this so that we can keep your community where it is so that we can eventually improve everything and make it a United States of America, as Kiefer Sutherland says. So I'm not saying that's not an important commentary. But my mise-en-scene goes into the scene where they break in Mm. to to the lab. And I think that's a very important statement that, or I don't want to say statement, but it's an important depiction of the way they break in. With the cavalry arrives, with Jamie Foxx sitting on the back of the convertible with his golden gun up. <laughs> so, yeah. so he, and you know when... when I mean, that's very... When, that's very um, Jackie Brown, yes, but also Django. Did you guys think... Because uh, I couldn't help seeing Jamie Foxx yeah. as Django mm. but when, um, on the horse and when stuff. When Fontaine you know? goes, well, what, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm bringing the effing cavalry. <laughs> now, so when they break in... In my mise-en-scene, I'm going to go down the path where Jewel Taylor is, in my opinion, making the point that this is the way you react when you're yeah. angry. This is what anger looks like. So it's not, it's not a fictitious depiction of this is right and this is wrong and, and, and this is the way I'm going to try to educate you about what's happening. It's in that new realm. I think there's a new kind of commentary that's arisen where you can take a step back. You can place it in the context of black exploitation, which a lot of people are critical of for like, you know, 20 years going, those are disgusting movies, yeah. Shaft and stuff. But you can then take a step back and say, no, there were depictions of a time of a particular context. And that makes it all the more interesting mm. for me. Well, anyway. definitely. I mean, black exploitation has been reread really importantly, I reckon, as also a celebration of blackness, mm. not just, you know, uh, 
because from a black point of view, black exploitation was really important, right? In cinema, but as an industry, gave black people a place to be and to kind of define themselves. One thing I wanted to say, which jumped at me from the first frame of this movie and stayed the whole way through, and to see like two texts that so depart from each other, but saying something very similar. Did you guys think of The Wire at all while watching this? <laughs> so for me, I was constantly thinking of The Wire is a very similar story. The hood, the, the sort of the various levels of drug dealers, pimps, hoes, etc., forming a community. But The Wire is absolute, you know, American neo-uber-realism. And Jewel totally decides, I'm going to go the opposite way. I'm going to go black exploitation, tongue-in-cheek, self-awareness, genre. But see, that, and that I'm interested, where do you guys sit with this? You know, no, I sit with it. I think it's very successful. The so Craig, is very lauded. You were right? saying, Craig, mm. that you didn't like the opening. Mm. So for me, that opening, that is harsh. That's pretty harsh, right? Um, the kid saying, oh, when are you going to get me out on the street? Like, that's yeah. the why. But that's right? the why. I mean, yeah. that, in fact, yeah. that scene is virtually lifted from the I've wire. also got in my notes here that I, if... If Boyega makes the right choices, he, you know, he's done Detroit recently and stuff like that. Yeah. So this is a hard-hitting side. Yeah, because Detroit didn't do it. That Catherine Bigelow movie didn't go anywhere. I don't know why. But people loved it. I, I mean, mean the critics I loved the critics But I didn't get why it. no one took it seriously because it opened very briefly and then it was gone. Right? I've seen, I've seen uh, uh, probably half of it and it's pretty confronting. It's pretty mm. it's mm. intense it violence. It's really confronting. But whereas Detroit was in the wake of The Wire because The Wire is confronting and The Wire is the... These are not only marginalized communities. They're like the forgotten in America. I remember being in LA and by accident getting going down Skid Row in downtown and my jaw just dropped. I couldn't believe that these were functioning communities of people living on a street. Because, you know, it was like between but that was seven and six, seven. In, in They Live, seeing that depiction as well. Yeah. Like it was being I mean, there forever. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. real stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but I'm interested in Jewel Taylor making that over as a genre of black exploitation. Well, Jewel Taylor's from Alabama, and yeah. so he brings a bunch of that in. He went to film school at mm. UCLA, but he's from Alabama, yeah. right? I feel like Dane Live is in the moment of that genre of film yep. and action sci-fi of the 80s. It is that, and yep. it was at that place, whereas this film feels like, oh, I'm smart enough, and that's four decades ago, I'm making a genre piece about... I'm, I'm using that form yep. to tell a story, to be and, smart and about... I, I totally agree. And then my question is, okay, what does that do to the political allegory that it, it's trying it to tell? It lives and it, 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 it's an assist, so to speak. Yep. So instead of The Matrix being a, a fake world set, you know, shot in Sydney, that then you go into the computer sci-fi world, it's like you're in the black exploitation world, a film about yep. black exploitation. And as you start to realise what your character is and what your place is, that's the... The lifting of the veil, so to speak. Yeah. It's using the form as well. I mean, I think this is... I th Why it's such an interesting movie is because it's a really original direction mm. in what is an amazing wave at the moment of movies by black filmmakers that are explicitly taken on the question of race. But it's very and that's only, obviously, Jordan Peele is, but is leading it's, that it's in some it's, it's way more Jordan Peele than Steve McQueen, for example, right? So, I so totally it's, agree. It's way more Jordan a, Peele than The Wire. It's heading in a, I think it's heading in a direction where you, you probably couldn't do this five years ago. You couldn't, you couldn't be this flippant about mm. it ten years ago. There's yeah. no way in the world you could be this flippant about it. interestingly, it's like, it's way more Jordan Peele, but it's also not Jordan Peele, because Jordan Peele is a very serious-minded race commentator, whereas... 
you could say, is this movie that serious-minded? It's it's much more playful. As you said, it's so much yeah. more fun and exuberant, right? Like Jamie Foxx and his cavalry coming, and they're all driving. They're not just pimps now, but they're driving pimp cars, right? So it's the whole black exploitation aesthetic. Whereas, you know, one of my favorite scenes in all of Jordan Peele so far is in Nope, where uh, they do the talk about the, you know the, the the guy that was on the um, horse, the yeah Ma- what's Ma- Maddie uh, M Mayo not Mayo Moybridge Moybridge Moybridge's yeah. horse and that it was a black guy sitting and they go that was my great 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 now for a person like for the three of us who love movies and talking about the origin of the motion image what Jordan Peele is going I'm going to claim the origin of movies for black people not mm. just for white people that's a really serious minded moment in that movie I I was like staggered that he it's such a direct jab at the history of cinema right One of whereas Jules Taylor yeah. doesn't kind of go that far and I, I for example I'd love to know what Jordan Peele thinks of they clone Tyrone yeah but Jordan Peele he's never going to or he's, I don't think he's ever going to put a line in his movie like um, well a, a pimp's got a low blood sugar level. I can't see no, that, yeah. There's no role for it. I just want to say a couple of things. The performances, I think Taylor struck gold here because Boyega, I've got in my notes here, if he picks correctly, this guy yeah, he's is on track to win an Oscar. Yeah, that's what depends on me by correct because this movie has not got a lot of attention. So, for example, if this movie gets big attention, maybe he gets nominated for an Oscar. But no one's even talking about the movie. Yeah, but it's gonna it's gonna catch it's gonna catch the eye of a lot of good good writers. I hope it's so. Catch the eye of people like I Jordan agree. He's sensation. Like I I watched the movie. I had no idea it was him. Neither did I until Herschel mentioned Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't know it was that Star Wars kid at all. The second time I watched it, I was like, I'm trying to see that Star yeah. Wars guy in this, and I, I mean, couldn't ha- see. He's so good. The degree to which he imbues like a huge kind of drug person. Yeah. But it, it, it never becomes sentimental, like, oh, he's the, he's the drug dealer with a heart of gold. It's mm. not that. It's Did you love that relationship he has with his mother? Oh, you know, yeah. Always walking up to the oh, door yeah, going, yeah, hey, mom. And, you know, and then obviously he discovers at the end it's, it's, a, uh, it's a, a tape recorder. But nonetheless, that's very The Wire as well. Did you both get a sense that um, Taylor was intentionally in the writing of this, interested in the time frame, in in, in Positioning this in in a particular time. So, oh, for example, definitely. you've got the mobile flip phone, but then mm. you've got the Harlem Church, which is like a throwback. You've got the grainy film. Yeah, well, I the was going to say, look, the minute you, the grain look comes on, you know that. You've got the 1970s sedans. All the cast. Uh, all yeah. the, all cast. the costume yeah. and hair. So, I I think that's an important point. You've got Kiefer Sutherland getting out of what is an old-style like, dynasty kind of 1980s mm. limousine. Mm. Um, all of it is, I think, messing around with any time signature or timestamp oh, totally. you can place on the and story. And that's a trope in itself of, like, dude, look, The Matrix, for example. Uh, let's move on to our miss on scenes. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our miss on scene where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first is Bruce. What have you chosen from They Live? I actually, I'm going to pick a different one because... Uh, a different movie? Gonna, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do the fight scene, but then... Because uh, we already talked a bit about that yeah. and I covered... I just want to say that a very common kind of mise-en-scene sensibility for Carpenter is to show the street and to show... Like, he's making movies in the 80s, right? When you say the street, you're talking about the road? Like, literally the road or the street? Yeah, like street street scenes. Okay, so You know, like one of the scenes... Assault and Precinct 13. Like, Assault and Precinct 13, Mm -hmm. very much. Escape from New York. Um, But Escape from New York is the one I want to go back to as something of a precursor to They Live. Because... 
you know, especially New York, escape from New York. New York was in a very precarious place in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at New York now, especially Manhattan, it's like all, it looks all squeaky clean. But go and watch Taxi Driver, right? And look at the way New York is shot, the way it's framed. Or one of our it's, movies from before, Pelham. Pelham absolutely. So the gritty New York, which is about people who are poor, people who are on the fringes of society who don't have a job, right? Uh, the drugs, the violence, etc. That's always been a little bit John Carpenter in the way that he shoots cities and urban spaces. And so my misunderstanding is just the really kind of wide approach he takes to showing you the community of the people who have no job and they are the resistance, and I like this idea that the people who resist are the ones who have been left behind and they form a community. So it's no different to, I mean, I think, again, there's a very thin subtext here of they're like a union that's formed, these street people. And the way it's shot is, uh, I think, one of the really logistically complex sequences in Carpenter, especially on a low budget, is when the police come in at that night sequence. Yeah. And it's really beautifully done because you've got people fleeing in different places. You've got the violence taking place. But like you were saying about fight, the fight scenes that, that come later, there's a lot of wide shots of just buildings yeah. and the detritus of a city and the people that have been lost behind and haven't worked maybe in a decade and the black market stuff that's happening so that – but in the meantime, there's a political resistance forming through it. And I just love – you know, we got heaps of uh, overhead shots. Yeah. yeah. And that's such like, a trope of the 80s. I especially like your comment on – the police coming into that street scene. So that idea of the raid became a really important part of the 80s. And also that's interesting to me because there's not a hell of a lot of it showing, you know, in in the modern New York or something like that. But then you come to Tyrone and that raid becomes a big deal, but yep, obviously in raid. reverse this time, right? Yeah. I mean, but also you, you see it in the realism of things like The Wire, where the police raid is a real thing. People feared it. Black people feared it, right? And I was also thinking of Reagan's war on drugs, which was really a war on the street drugs of black communities. Mm. People would come in and raid you. And if you had drugs on you, you're stuffed, right? And John because, Carpenter uses the overhead shot, yeah. uses the spotlight under the helicopter very well yep. in this film. So you get that. So that for me, the business saying is like, I just had that image in Carpenter in Escape from New York, but also they live, there's a little bit of Big Trouble in Little China, where you just see people fleeing, yep. like, you know, the and big helicopter shots. And I love that. That is such a motif of 80s, you know, political allegory type things. As I said before, he's a lefty liberal, right, filmmaker. Always look for the way that his movies, I think, promote the idea of collectivities over the individual, very suspicious of, like, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the individual capitalist uh, much more interested in union collectives. That's going to go through all the, you know, especially Escape from New York. Um, but anyway, that so that's the mise en scene. It's just one of the, the the great sequences in They Live. All right, let's move on. Herschel, what's your mise en scene from They Clone Tyrone? Mise en scene. When I was when doing some prep for the podcast, I was reading the Jewel Taylor interview and a couple of other things, a couple of other, other reviews. So Jewel Taylor said that the when you depict someone eating chicken at a restaurant, that's dangerous in itself. Mm. You're going you're gonna to get mm. stick from the black community massively if you do something like that. The fact that Tyrone hasn't gotten widespread release or widespread commentary, I think is telling that nobody has really spoken about the scene where the rebellion group, now what Jamie Foxx calls the cavalry when they're coming in, when they take over, 
when they break into the lab, which is under the city, so the underground that is controlling everyone above it. So again, that's how they live, right? Because in they yeah. live, the whole network's under the city. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. I think if this thing catches on a wider audience, people are going to start talking about this particular scene and for this reason. When I saw the, the, the overhead shot, the wide shot of the cars driving down with Jamie Foxx sitting on the back of the back seat yeah. with his golden gun up, um, then remember, he fist pumps the dude next to him. Yes. Don't forget who killed him in the start of the movie. So people are going to immediately say, well, how come they're friends again or something like that? But again, if you try to unpack the morality of it, none of it makes sense. Um, when they break in, though, this is for me an important statement that Taylor's making to some extent. It's not a moral statement or a political statement, but it's a statement of a, a representation or a spectacle, as you were saying earlier, Bruce. I've got in my notes here that for me, it's that kind of depiction of anger and revenge just stripped, stripped bare. It's to some extent um, watching the real footage of the Rodney King response in the L.A. riots. Um, it's mm. almost crossing over into a zombie movie where people are from frenetic and crazy. It's also got a sense of irresponsibility and behavior that, when you sit back, you'd go, well, that's disgusting. I don't know if you both remember the guy sitting in the in the control booth and he makes a call on his mobile phone. You go, yeah, we've broken in. We've taken over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, my boys are like, and then you look over and it's people shooting people and they're smashing yeah. them. Yeah, they're that, that reminded them. me of um, like the phone call made by those ins uh, the insurrectionists. Yeah. Oh, insurrectionists? hey, that's an interesting. You know, when they're taking the photos inside. January 6th. Yeah, January 6th. Yeah. The guy's going into the Capitol, right? So... For me, that's an interesting point because See, on I the one hand, that's a great. Point. I didn't think of that mm. at all. And it's, well, I mean, really, what is it? It's a mob taking over, and it's mob violence, mm. isn't it? Yeah. But it's mob violence in the context of um, a story that is commenting on the oppression of black people and black community, and using the tropes of church mm. and food and and culture to control people. If you want to try and ask what is Taylor trying to say, I don't think it's helpful. But if you try to work yeah, out what he's trying to say, you run into Yeah, but in the same yeah. way, you're compelled to wonder what's going on here, right? Because Tarantino got in a, Now, Tarantino's white, granted. Jewel Taylor's not. But he got in a lot of crap for Django as a kind of revenge slavery narrative insofar as, you know, as we talked mm. with Inglorious, it was a kind of revenge Jewish narrative. So Tarantino got in trouble for Django because it was just showing the ecstasy of violence not really as kind of slave revolt or emancipation. So you could say here then that there's a kind of just glee in all these people going nuts and writing, right? And some people might find that distasteful. So I, that's again, I, want, I wish we had Jordan Peele here because I want to go, hey, you're the, you're the kind of leading voice at the moment in, in American cinema on race. What do you make of this? So that's the final thing I want to say about this mise-en-scene and about the film, really. It's a depiction of a mob gone rampant hurting and killing a particular community for what they've done to them, it's also making it very cool in the way that they yeah. do it. Mm. Um, very, and this is the Jamie Foxx. It's bringing the cool black exploitation right? yeah. into a mob environment. Yeah. But I'm also in a, in a very luxurious position to be able to say, I kind of find it fun. I don't want to think about morality when I'm viewing the scene because it's bloody entertaining. But I'm very fortunate to be able to make that commentary. So if you... It can be a very confronting scene to particular communities. That's the point I, I want to make. It I could just, also be empowering. 
right? Yeah, it, yeah I, th- I think it's one of those action cinema empowering moments where it's like, well, I've lived out the fantasy of what I wish I could mm. do. I, I didn't do it. I watched a movie instead. Mm. But uh, my, the, the moral positioning of the film at times, uh, when I'm watching it and there's so much um, <laughs> demigration of, and, and misogyny towards sex workers and stuff, yeah. uh, for me, even though I know that's black exploitation, yeah. and when I watch black, I'm okay, I accept the mode of that. I still had trouble with the first half of this film. I'm like, man, this has gone. It's a little hard. You don't see that so much anymore. Mm. But by that point, I had to be convinced. But that's the. F- I guess that's the joy. The performer, she's mm. having fun with it. She's going over the top. All the women in the film, even though they're, they're, they're sex workers, that's they're having. You know, they're turning. But also, it up. she becomes quite a powerful figure in herself, right? Because she's yeah. the catalyst. In a sense, she's the catalyst for the rebellion. She's the Nancy Drew character. But, yeah. She's the brains behind the operation. For the yeah. political and the moral compass, my, I, I had some point I went, okay, I'm yeah. just going to accept the play and the fun of it yep. and just move on. Well, this and is so the by thing the I'm ending, which is like, by the, well, when we get to the end, I'm like, yeah. okay, yeah, I enjoy the fun of overthrowing yeah. the I whites. take exactly your point, Craig. It's exactly what happens when you try to take a Taylor Swift lens and put it over hip hop or rap. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, no, if you great, do that, great, if, you, if you do that, you basically you really can't listen to any hip-hop or rap because... Uh, I mean, but this is, you know, that this is that eternal question, right? On the one side, you, you, there's a huge black commentary that says what is actually going on here is, like, retaking stuff for ourselves. Mm. Like, we want... These are our tropes. We're going to bring them into the mainstream, yeah. right? And no one's going to stop us. And then what we're saying is, okay, but there's another way of looking at this. Do I really want to see... I mean, you know, in the crudest sense, do you do black people want to portray black culture like this? Which I agree with you, picks up a bit on the LA riots, the the kind of, you know, the all those overhead shots of looters and so on. And the way white people were describing that was, oh, can, I mean, I, when I teach things like Malcolm X, I always play the footage from the news bulletins. And the white people literally saying things like, I can't believe that these people are in our country or, you know, there's, there's such a racism to but, it, right? But then this goes so to my... So do we want to see that in a movie like they clone Tyrone? And this goes to my point of we're entering a new, a new environment, a new paradigm of commentary on these points because um, when Jamie Foxx... Because Taylor is even satirizing that very point when Jamie Foxx says, why is it always going to be black on black crime? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, there's so many layers of... Knowingness about yes. what's but going that, on, and that's that impressive. Line, right? The black on black crime. Remember, that became a hallmark of analysis of black communities. It was used by white communities to say, yeah. "Well, nothing we did yeah. as a black on black crime." It was used by black communities to say, "We got to bond together because it's us against them." So you can't have any black on black crime. And yet, you come to this movie, and Jamie Foxx, in the context of at times full blown farce, mm-hmm. he says, "Why is it always got to be black on mm-hmm. black crime?" And then it becomes black on white. Right? Mm. That's so, the whole movie. I, you know, that's why I think Tyrone is going to be problematic to some, entertaining to others. I'd just be interested if it got a bigger voice than this. Before we, One thing before we wrap up. Did you guys have any issue in terms of there being a giant plot hole in this movie? Which one? Mm-hmm. I didn't understand how it was possible for dead people to be cloned <sighs> to maintain a community when the community would recognize... That the, someone had died. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and the, the reanimation. Like, I was like, yeah. Why do people just walk around going, hey, you were dead. Hey, you were dead. No, no, like, I thought of that. that I, from? I thought of that. And remember when Tyrone turns up, not Tyrone, sorry, when Fontaine turns up for the first time. Yeah. And it's as though nobody knew that he got shot. And yeah. you're going, what happened? And she goes, yeah, yeah, I saw your ass on the ground. Yeah. Um, but life just goes on. So yeah. it, it, there is commentary yeah, on that. But at the same time, you know, 
the whole community would know that Fontaine got shot well, yesterday. I, I, I was thinking that uh, what you would do to solve that is that you kill the people who saw him get shot if they're not the yeah. cloned but people But clearly that that's not happening. Be, no, 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 because they slip up. Because that, Yeah, the first time... But I, I mean, the slip up that gets made seems to me would happen every single time you did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think, so I didn't get I think that we got on that path of digging too deep because yeah. Jules Taylor said, I wanted to make a Scooby-Doo movie with some entertainment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's definitely an element of Scooby-Doo. Well, there it is. Two conspiratorial films and race plays a big part in the second one, which then makes it... I don't know. We didn't discuss race so much for the first one, but definitely the motive... The underclass There's and definitely the left a connection and, yeah, to the underclass, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. All right, well, that's it for our conspiratorial special next week. It's time to saddle up and head into the Western genre as we look at a revisionist Western from 2021 and a sympathetic Western made in 1992. Yes, we're going to compare Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, which was nominated for 12 Oscars, including Best Picture, with Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which was only nominated for nine Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> Although it did win, I hey, think, Hey, what won in the year that Power the Dog didn't win? Because I remember wanting Power the Dog to 2020, win. 2020, could it be? What, what oh, I was going to say That's Parasite. two years ago, is it? Uh, Parasite would have been No, nah, that was earlier, I think. Yeah, 20. Um, yeah, good question. What is that one? Because well, Power the Dog, I just remember thinking, wow, this is one of the important films for like a decade. Well, there's your homework. Go out and find out who okay. won the Oscar in 2021. <laughs> also, I don't know how Unforgiven is, un- is, is a sympathetic Western because Eastwood unloads on a lot of people in that movie. <laughs> you don't <laughs> want to tangle with, with Eastwood with a, a shotgun. Yeah. All right, there it is. It's all about men with guns next week in the Old West. Uh, you can see Power of the Dog on Netflix and uh, around the world and Unforgiven is on Amazon, Foxtel, Google and YouTube. So check it out before next week. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen. Give us five stars. At least. As it will help other people to find us. It's the only way people are going to find out. So don't tell them. Just hey, go right. Can I do one yeah. more shout out sure. to my student, Caitlin, who submitted a PhD yesterday? Oh, congratulations, so That's Caitlin. a big event for Caitlin. And it's slightly, it's not as big for me, obviously, but in an academic's career, when your student submits, it's a huge thing. It's the, one of the loveliest things you can go through. I'm happy that you said that. I thought you were going to say it was, it was a big event for Caitlin, but a slight event for me. No, no. no. Huge. And, and the, one of the bigger things that happens in your academic life is when, because I get the reports before, obviously, Caitlin mm. doesn't get them directly, it comes to me. So when you open those reports, and uh, her thesis is very good, so yeah, I don't know issue. Great. But when, you op- when I, I know when I open that report, it's going to be like, oh, that, that's such a reward. For years, years of work. That's excellent. Well, congratulations, Caitlin. Um, I'm sure you're a big listener. Oh, yeah. No, Caitlin, Caitlin's a big Long time listener. <laughs> Huge fan. All right, well, congratulations. <laughs> Caitlin is such a fan. <laughs> well, you can also find us on Instagram at Film versus Film Podcast, where we do all types of things. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Herschel Isaacs. I've been Bruce Isaacs. Join us next time for Film versus Film. Take two. Film versus Film. Film. Versus film.